Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in in today's episode. This is episode 194. 194. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, uh, any more two to three star ratings reviews come in or is it all five stars this week? Hey, we did it, my man. We did it. We hit 300. We did it. Did we? Yes, we did. And and it's perfect timing because uh, it wasn't a written one. It was just a five star, just click five star. We take five star written or clicking. We're not, don't care. Just five stars. That's the rule. So 300 five star views. And this is our four year anniversary show, Josh. Four years. I think our first episode, I had it pulled up a minute ago, I closed it out, was on March 2nd or 3rd of 2017. March 2nd or 3rd of 2017, something like that. So it's been four years, man. That's crazy. Four years, ain't that something? And think so about all the stuff that's happened in four years. Yeah, so we've had a uh, TV show host become president. <laughs> no, no, he was he was already in. He was already we president when we started, already, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, March 3rd, 2017, so two days from today is when our first show aired. Uh, and I don't know if that was actually when – I don't know if we released it later on. Let's see, let's see here. I can go back to that. Let's see here. Is we probably recorded a day before, huh? March 3rd, 2017. Probably, that, yeah. That would have been, for all those who are curious. No, we released it the same day because we recorded on Fridays back then. So we recorded and released on the 3rd. So four years ago, man. That's crazy. Uh, so thanks everyone for listening, for tuning in, uh, share the show around, let folks know what's going on. We've been here for four years and, uh, you know, the votes haven't been tallied. The Dominion servers aren't exactly working, but we might, might do another four. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with all that. But, uh, uh, but to do another four, Josh, we need the listeners help. So we have three-star review, uh, five-star, not three-star, five-star reviews. Um, also, be sure to go and to sign up for the War Room newsletter that helps support the show. It's 10 bucks a month. We throw in a discount code in there to help you folks out. I think it's, uh, was it 30% off? I don't know. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty good deal. Um, anyways, we'll throw a discount code in the show notes for folks to check it out. Uh, if you want Nate to come back, which I understand. And listen, you can sign up and say, I want my money to go text my guys podcast, but not Nate. That's, we, we will we will take that, but the War Room newsletter is how you can support the show. Um, we would love to have you do that. And all, oh, by the way, Josh, I don't know if you saw the feed or not, we had on your boy, Ted Cruz, the other day. I saw that. Inside the War Room. And so I ran that for free on this, um, on this um, podcast feed as well. So, hey, listen, moving on up in the world, my man, things are going good. Uh, so anyways, so yeah, so be sure to sign up. Yeah, that was interesting, um, interesting interview you did there. It seemed like it went by really quick though, 23 minutes. I don't know if it's because he's a talker, um, or it was just a couple of things he said, but it seemed like that 20 minutes just went, I mean, how many questions did you get out? Like four or five? It just seemed like it flew by. Yeah. So a little inside baseball here, it was scheduled for 10 to 15. And so he hops on at 250 and I said, do you have any questions before he record? Nope, I hit record. And so um, we're going, and I realize that I'm not going to get to get to nearly much uh, the energy stuff that I wanted to get to. So I was going to do China first and then energy because originally last year when I talked about having him on, it was about China. Um, and so 
I wanted to kind of touch some of the China stuff. And so they they text me, his press secretary texts me, says you can go to uh, instead of 205, you go to 215, or not 215, so 1015. So instead of going to 905, uh, 1005, you can go to 1015. So I got an extra 10 minutes. Uh, so if you go back and listen to the interview, you know, it, the, the 15 minute mark is when it was supposed to be ended. And so I got an extra 10 minutes or we wouldn't even got that in. And so wow. uh, yeah. you're right. It was kind of just a bang, 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 just trying to get through it. And, you know, one thing we do on this show and all the shows I do, on, we try to let their guests talk. And so, you know, if they just go on and on and on, just, you know, try to let them get their, their piece out there and they can hear us bloviate about it later. So. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a couple of things, uh, a couple of things that we wanted to hit on. So last week we were talking about what was all going to do this week with uh, all the shutdowns, but from the cold, some of these refineries had shut down, some of these ports were closed. So apparently uh, people are actually, uh, the title of this article is Whispers of $100 Oil uh, 2022. So in options trading, there are actually options for oil at $100 a barrel at the end of 2022. It's going up from like 60 to like 3,000 options that are, that are trading right now. So uh, it's a super bullish um, take. But Goldman and Sachs, they did come out and say that they're thinking that I think third or fourth quarter this year, they're thinking that oil is going to be back to 70 five yeah third quarter this year goldman sachs anticipates 75 dollar oil the big uh, the big question there's going to be opec right i mean what are they going to do next month or what, what is it april or may when they're supposed to revisit no they may they, they meet here uh this week i believe uh maybe the third something like that let's see here um it, it's soon it's soon um opec meeting is on Uh, I can't find it, but it's um, it's soon. I want to say it's this week, mm. March fourth. Yeah, so March fourth. Okay, so, so this week they're going to be meeting. Yeah, so I mean, what? Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I say the thing that that's been interesting is if you follow someone like you know, maybe Mark Rosano or Big Orn on Twitter or other folks, um, and also had a Nasal Haji on inside the war room last week too. So folks, go check that out. But um, you know, there's kind of you have the paper market, which is being traded, and then you have the physical market, which is, you know, what's actually there. Um, and, and there's kind of a sentiment that says that the paper market has kind of detached itself from reality to um, the physical market. And so Big Warren has a thread I retweeted at Renner Senior on Twitter, uh, and I'll try to link to it in the show notes. It says, um, here are the reasons I believe the physical oil market is nowhere near as tight as people believe it is. A, tight market is usually equated to supply-demand balance plus the amount of spare capacity in the market. At the moment, there's a huge amount of spare capacity that can return quickly. B, um, there's also a high level of excess inventories. Any lost spare of capacity at, at, moment, at moment is such that spare capacity will be significantly in, ex- in excess of normal. Therefore, the perception of shortage of oil is overhyped. And he goes on to break it down. So um, it doesn't mean that, you know, that prices can not go up, um, you know, a little bit higher or, or whatever. It's just that, we, the price to, to kind of believe that the prices can't go down um, is a little bit premature. Also, there was and uh, Rosano, I don't know if I can find his report on this, but he had a report on um, talking about the actual um, sale of oil from West Africa, I believe it was, and how they're having a hard time actually getting the sales. And this is from the best oil in the world. They were having a hard time getting it to go to market, so people weren't looking to buy it. So I think. 
yeah, there are people who are very optimistic about the market, but I also think there's plenty of reasons that people are um, suspect about what's going on. So you know, it, it, on the show, just so people know, you know, we know that you listen to us and we, we appreciate that. And so we're, we're kind of always hesitant to take a too strong of a stance one way or another because, you know, it's um, it's easy to be flippant about these things. And so trying to try to respect it. So I, I personally think the market's a little bit overpriced. It doesn't mean it might, go, might, might, might not go back up, but um, you know, if we saw seventy dollar oil for the rest of the year, I would be surprised. Is kind of my take on it. So there's a uh, article over here. Uh, I mentioned the refineries. So right now, a lot of the refineries, due to the cold, were were shut in. So they are trying to race to get back on because with the oil price where it is, there's margins for them to make good money. And so they are, uh, they are, from what I'm seeing, they are working diligently to try to get everything back up and running. Uh, let's see, they have crew processing since February. Yeah, as I think they're, they're hoping to be up and running by April, uh, based on some of the reports that I'm seeing here. So, um, it's an opportunity for people to maybe capitalize and make a little money when stuff's been pretty hard this year. So, hopefully, Paul, get it while you can. Yeah. So, it's interesting because, you know, as you say, they're going to race to get back. And so the question when they get back is, you know, where will prices be? And so the Saudi thing is, is interesting because we look at today, the Saudis took off a million barrels a day earlier, earlier this year. Um, I think everyone expects them to put the million barrels a day back on um, here this week or, well, it won't be this week, but they'll announce to put it back on this week. And then you're going to have to see what Russia and the other OPEC plus members, you know, what they're saying. And so, um, you know, so if they announce it, I think, timeline right here they announced it today it won't be until for april and may so it won't be like coming on the market next week or thing i think it's for april may maybe may june though i don't, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head but anyways so it's at least a month out before this will come back on the market um of course you should see rising demand in the u.s as we go as the weather gets warmer people consider going on vacations um spring break school getting out stuff like that so you know we'll, we'll see how all that shakes out but uh yeah I'm curious to see. I think the Saudis will put the beam back on. You know, will that be enough to level off prices or keep them from going to be more? I don't know. I think the Saudis, in, in their standpoint, had to be careful because if they if they don't do something to stop the price from going up uh, to seventy, eighty dollars a barrel, then you know you will see the the shell producers going out there trying to drill as much as possible. And why wouldn't they? As you as your point, uh, as you made the point, Josh, if you can make the money, why not? So. I'm curious to see if we might see a little bit more from the Saudis than normal. I would be stunned if they don't put the, um, if they don't put more than, uh, or they don't put less than a million on. I, th- I think, I think a million is kind of the, the, the bottom. That's kind of what I'm, I think at least a million is coming back on this week. Yeah, I don't know if they'll do, I don't know if they'll do more or not. I don't know if they'll do more or not. Um, but I think a million, I think they had to put that million back on. I don't see how they, how they can't. So. Yeah. I mean, there's an article that came out. This was, this is a, about a week old, uh, this is from the 22nd. It says that Saudis and Russia differ again on oil strategy before the OPEC meeting, OPEC plus meeting that's happening this week. Uh, never like to see that. Uh, you know, you know, ah, that, that well, gives us PTSD. I'm about to say, we're, we, are, we are almost a year out from the day when the, when the price war happened. When was that? Uh, uh, that was February. Like, no, it was March. It was March, but it would have been sure. like March. Uh, yeah. It'd be like March 12th or something. 
because it was like a week before the shutdowns. Because that was well, I, I was thinking the shutdowns were March twelfth and March tenth. I was thinking it was the second week of March. So uh, I must be wrong. I must be wrong. Yeah, March March seventh, I think is the day. Yeah. So on March eighth, the so on March eighth, which had been the Saturday, the Saudis initiated price war. So on March seventh was an eight was it must have been the day that the, the Russians announced that they weren't going to play nice. And then the eighth, so yeah. So the seventh would have been the the OPEC meeting where the Saudis, where the Russians walk out like, hey, screw you guys. And then the eighth would have been that Saturday night. Oh, no. So sixth and seventh. Okay. Yeah. So Friday's the sixth. Then it would have been Saturday the seventh. And then the eighth. So that would have been the week. So, God, that's almost a year ago to the day by the time this podcast comes out. Uh, that's crazy. It is. And then lockdowns would have happened like within a week, like you said, the 12th, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's probably about right. So, yeah. So I was, because I went down to Houston on the 11th last year to meet with some folks. And uh, that was the night that Trump announced the travel ban, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So that would have been, um, yeah, that'd been right. God, it's hard to believe that's been a year. Yeah, I felt like it was felt like last year was 16 years long. Yeah, that'd been it. So yeah, so here we are. Happy world ending week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gracious. So all right. Today we have a guest from Inveris, Nick Volkmer. He's the VP of Intelligence with Inveris. Nick, uh, great to have you on the show today. I've been looking forward to this interview for a little while. Great to have you on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Ryan. Happy to be here. Uh, this is a little bit awkward here. Uh, you're the vice president of intelligence. Uh, the, the two hosts of this podcast have never been associated with intelligence, so make sure you <laughs> make sure you kind of dumb it down for us as we get into this, because uh, I'm not sure we have much to contribute to this conversation. But uh, what, what does the VP of intelligence do? Like, like just out of curiosity, before we get into like the, the meat and potatoes here, like, like how does one get yeah. that title? <laughs> I think I think um, to answer that, it might make sense to just talk a little bit about the like where where we came from at Inveris. So intelligence, that's what we, we refer to as research. So um, like, have you guys ever heard of RS Energy Group? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, cool. So the, uh, for those unfamiliar, RS Energy Group, we've been around for about 20 years and were acquired by Inveris about a year ago. And really what we made a name for ourselves in the market was uh, talking to the institutional community and looking at kind of trying to, trying to um, stress test some of the assumptions out there in the oil and gas world and do a lot of our own independent analytics uh, to come down with different um, investment ideas. So uh, we were originally called research. A few years ago, we rebranded as intelligence. Uh, but really what we're trying to do is be an independent voice within the market and try to, uh, to look at what the data says and bring that up to an investment idea. So, you know, we'll look at different parts of a play, um, look at do our own independent type curve forecasting, economic forecasting. And, and now we're, what we're also looking into is, uh, is a company's ESG footprint as well to try to uh, ultimately roll that up to um, something that makes sense in an easy to digest way. Well, Josh, I think that we've kind of got our marching orders now. We're going to start calling ourselves the, the, uh, the intelligence host on this podcast. So we can kind of <laughs> get kind of sound smart too. Okay. So Inveris obviously has gotten into a lot, a lot of things and, um, one of the things that I think it's caught a lot of people's eye is the ESG space. Um, so first of all, maybe yep. the listeners who kind of heard the term are familiar with what ESG is, what is it, and why is Inveris interested in it? Because I know there's, it's a controversial topic, at least from a historical kind of oil yep. and gas perspective. 
Yeah, 100%. So for those unfamiliar, ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance. And what it's, it's, what, what it's, um, it's a way to include new data sets into the investment process that was commonly overlooked in the past. Um, so it's, it's all about looking at a company's holistic environmental footprint, their board governance, like how aligned are they, are, is, uh, is their um, uh, shareholder, how, how aligned is the kind of board's performance with shareholders? What's the diversity like at the company and trying to look at, okay, if we're looking, if this company is going to be around for the next 20 or 30 years, is there any inherent risks that we're not taking into account? Uh, when making these investments. And it's grown in popularity uh, considerably over the last few years, uh, really driven by the investment community. Like you have like, like funds, like, like big funds like BlackRock and, and different large institutions that are essentially saying that this is essential for doing business now. And um, where we're coming at it from is it's a, it's, there's a lot of data out there on a company's greenhouse gas uh, profile or its environmental footprint that wasn't commonly looked at um, a few years ago by the investment community. Now the investment community is really hungry for that data and they're hungry for that analysis. And, you know, that's, that's, that, that's what we do is we're, we're a data company, we're a data analytics firm. Um, so we set out to try to understand the landscape ourselves and essentially cast a wide net on the data that's available and bring that in and distill that into an easy to, uh, easy to, to, to digest format for, uh, for our clients. So are you concerned that this could be used to weaponize against oil and gas companies? I mean, you see someone like engine number one who is threatened to, you know, kind of put a lot of pressure on Exxon uh, mobile. Yeah. They're not meeting their criteria. Um, you know, we can have a, there's kind of separate discussions. There's one discussion, which is what is the data? What's it useful for? And then there's also the kind of crazy folks who want to, you know, if you look, if you say the word <laughs> oil and gas, they want to sue you. So are, are you, are you concerned that maybe you're playing into that narrative and how do you balance that out? So the way I look at it is it's, it's obviously a, a pretty um, hot topic um, when you think about it, but there's naturally going to be people in this market who are, uh, uh, you know, who are just going to necessarily be against oil and gas. Um, that's really not our target audience. Our tar target audience is not the, the investors who are divesting away from oil and gas, but the ones who are staying in and saying that, okay, we know that, you know, 10% of our portfolio needs to be allocated to, to energy or, you know, we're an energy only investor. But we also understand that if regulations change or, you know, if, if um, you know, if different uh, uh, aspects of the market change, then uh, we need to understand what the underlying profile of our company is. Um, so what we're doing is, you know, focusing on those clients there, because really that's, and, and, and you know, that's the, that's the tar target audience. I'd say the, the ones who weaponize it are probably a little bit more on the fringe and not, you know, they're, they're not our clients. They're not the ones that we're that we're uh, providing data to. What we're trying to do here is make sure that, you know, regardless of whether Inveris provides this data, the investment community is looking for it. And what we wanna do is make sure that both the operators and the investment community are on a level playing field, right? So that we understand what the data is, we're transparent about it. And, um, you know, it's, it's not like we're, uh, you know, may, uh, coming up with this data ourselves, it's all from public sources. What we're doing is we're compiling that data and making sure that the conversation could at least be as unbiased as possible and as data-driven as possible, which is really what we try to do. That's our, kind of our bread and butter. So what, what sort of data are the investors looking for exactly? So are they, are they looking at, well, you just answered the question, is it met, met, methane emissions? Or what, what are some of the primary things that the investors are looking for? Yeah, it's the, I'd say the, 
three or four big ones. One of them is going to be a company's greenhouse gas emissions. Like we know that um, about you know ten to twenty percent of a emissions um, in a barrel of oil is from the the production and in, in, in that processing phase. Um, so companies want to understand uh, what that looks like because it's it's really interesting. Like even if you look within a play, like you look at two companies that are next door, one like one company might emit six times the amount of carbon dioxide per barrel of oil produced than its neighbor. So it's about understanding that nuance is pretty important. Um, stuff like flaring also tends to be uh, pretty interesting for investors just because if you could, you know, companies with lower rates of flaring also have higher rates of, uh, of uh, they, they sell more of their gas. So it's a win-win um, in that situation. Uh, methane emissions tend to be up there too. But when you look at ESG as a whole, a big one these days is uh, a company's board governance um, metrics. So, you know, how are these, how are executives being incentivized? How aligned is that with shareholders? Um, uh, and looking at those different uh, kind of overall governance statistics are also really important. And then I, I would also throw in uh, recycled water rates in certain certain areas too tend to be uh, looked at pretty favorably. So one the of the community. one of the things that Ryan kind of just mentioned um, that one concern is that certain companies can act almost as lobbyists for getting these rules. Uh, formatted in a way that really fits their their business model. Um, one example that we, we give a lot on the show is Pioneer. As soon as they make some yeah. updates to uh, their carbon capture, they then try to encourage uh, legislatures to pass laws that require these as minimum standards as soon as they get their stuff up to a certain um, yeah. a certain level, which it makes sense on the Pioneer side, but it's also yeah. anybody can see what they're doing. Uh, one of the questions I have is, as these investors are looking for that, do you think that it's possible that um, they can use that to to really put a lot of pressure on some of these smaller companies? Because I would venture, and I, and I don't know this for a fact, you might actually yeah. uh, correct me, a lot of these smaller companies are probably going to be in that class where they have five to six times the carbon emissions per barrel of oil. I mean, yeah. Would it typically be the smaller companies that... that... It tends to be a, a bit of a scale for sure. Um, what I've been pretty like the, the conversations that I have though, is investors are really looking at peer group to peer group. And I think okay. that's one thing that gets muddied when the data is not very transparent is you just look at, okay, Pioneer is going to be very public about their performance because they're using that as a, you know, as a way to try to get people to invest in their company. Right. And then if you're a small company that, you know, that's the only data point out there and that's what you have to benchmark yourself to. Um, when the data becomes a lot more transparent, what we're allowing companies to do is, okay, you know, let's not, you know, if I'm a, a small single basin kind of private operator, I don't want to benchmark set myself to Pioneer. I want to benchmark set myself to other companies that fit my profile. Um, so with the data more available, then it's like, okay, let's, let's not look at, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to show how I compare to Exxon because that's not a, a necessarily fair statistic. Let me show how I, that compared to another mom and pop shop or another small private operator. So I think that, you know, that's, and that's where when the data becomes more visible, you're able to do that. If not, then you're, you're only allowed to, or you're, you're, you're kind of forced to, to compare yourself to the pioneers and exons of the world. Real quick, just, just since you mentioned that, I think that's a great point. Are you working with, uh, or is Inveris working with the government officials to say like, okay, guys, before you make legislation, understand that here's kind of the, the, the batches of, of organizations we have and here's kind of how things work because 
one of the problems that we're very critical of government on, on this broadcast is that they'll, they'll yep. say something and it overly impacts a small guy and then the big guys over there making money. So are y'all working with government officials to kind of show them how y'all think about this stuff? We try to stay away from uh, getting too political. Like what we're, we really try to find our place in the market is, is being unbiased and being like, okay, the investors care about these numbers and this type of analysis. We're going to try to be an unbiased view of that. Like, you know, we, like we don't have, necessarily any any skin in the game like we don't buy any of the securities that we that we research or anything like that um so what we do is we just try to uh look at what is the you know what, what's changing in the market and how can you know how can what's the best way to allocate capital right now a lot of investors are you know either either doing this internally or being asked by the, by their investors to uh to understand the esg profile of the companies that they own and so that's where what we're going to do is we're going to take the available data. We're not going to, you know, like we like we're not going to work with, or we're, we're you know likely not going to work with government to um, to try to update those regulations or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, we're we're taking the what's uh, what's out there now, what's public, what's public, and distilling that down into a, a, a kind of an easy to digest format. No one likes government. You're you're you come on the wrong podcast. <laughs> you come on the right podcast. You want to bash government, so we could go there too. I was just curious because you, when you said that, it's like okay, I wonder if government's uh, not not necessarily that you guys are trying to influence policy, but I wonder if government had reached out. But that's fine the way. Okay, um, one of the things you said yeah. a minute ago, I'm curious about is you said investors and what they're looking for. So if you kind of follow the narrative of the shell investor. Um, um, after 2016, 2017, 2018, you, you kind of saw this narrative, well, you know, hey, we were incentivized, you guys to go out there and drill and to continue, continue to drill, continue to drill. We don't want to do that anymore. And then it was, we need, we need returns. And then last year, obviously, kind of reset the paradigm. So people were saying, well, the money's out. It's not coming back in. Some people are saying, we'll come back in. The price is going to What are investors looking for? Because you've, you've mentioned some of these <laughs> things um, with ESG. So like, what are you guys hearing uh, from investors and how does that shape your research? Because I, I'm quite interested because I, I do wonder what it is that's going to bring investors back to our market um, because there, there's a lot of fear that the money might not come back for a long time. Yeah, no, that's, that's the million dollar question right there is what our investors looking at. So that's why, that's what we spend a ton of time digging into is trying to understand that dynamic. And also I think that there's narratives that get put out in the market that don't necessarily show up and, and where investments are being made. So like a big one is like the only thing that investors care about is free cash flow, uh, which is true. They do. But if you look at a company that um, is, is you know declining production to, to generate free cash flow, then they tend to not be um, uh, looked at very favorably by the market. So the the way that we look at things is it's it's a mix of three different things: a small rate of growth, so nothing crazy like we saw back in you know 2014 or 2015, um, like a you know it's a kind of single digit uh, rate of growth. Um, uh, uh, the ability to generate free cash flow is important, and then also the ability to have a, an, an overall strong environmental or strong uh, uh, ESG profile relative to peers. So if you could check those three boxes, those are really what, what investors are looking for today, is a combination of a little bit of growth, strong free cash flow yields, kind of like, you know, at least 10 to 15%, and then, um, and then top tier environmental performance. That's kind of the, what, the, what the market is, is really trying to really trying to find these days well, one quick follow-up on that real quick um you say we said peers a few times do you guys have like a certain number of sets of class of peers that are out there is it like there's four or five classes of oil and gas companies that that you're, you're saying or is it like two or three uh can you kind of break what that down yeah break down what that means sorry 
yeah, like I, I'd say that's pretty fluid. Those groupings, like we'll like the, we'll typically group the privates together, kind of the mid cap. So those those would be your, your small and medium uh, cap operators, and then your large cap operators together. So it's it's going to be dependent on the context. Like if you're looking at just within like in the Eagleford or just within the Permian, we might group a few of those together. They kind of go cross class a little bit, uh, but it's it's yeah, it's it's usually grouped in those those buckets, and then you, you'd have like your midstream producers and then your uh, your OFS companies too with separate separate uh, groupings. All right, so um, you know we had the Texas freeze that came out here recently, and there was a lots of a lot of news coming. <laughs> Why did it happen? And there were both sides are kind of blaming. When I say both sides, there was the clean energy, the green green side was blaming oil and gas, oil and gas was blaming. Yeah. other sectors of the industry we actually had a guest on david blackman and he talked about uh from his perspective that uh the industry or uh, i guess the government was uh, given subsidies and incentives for going green and they weren't incentivizing coal or natural gas plants um and he he said basically it investors had no incentive to come in and invest in these uh base load um, yeah. base load capacity. And that's why there was a shortage of, of energy. Not sure what all other variables are out there, but what, yeah. uh, what is something that y'all are doing to, um, I guess, help people see the bigger picture as far as what's going on and what needs to happen in order to better understand the situation, why it happened and, uh, right. what the solutions are. No, it's a, it's a great question. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really interesting time to follow the news that week when you're, you know, you're seeing a lot of different reasons come out and in the media, you're, you're, you know, you're kind of seeing both sides of different arguments. And what I, what I think, uh, you know, I'm really excited with Inveris and what we, what we tend to do is we're very data driven and we like to look at what the actual numbers say. Um, so, because in our, in our view, the numbers don't tend to lie. Um, and you could always, you could obviously present numbers any way you want that want to. But what we try to do is look holistically at what the numbers are telling us and use that to to drive some type of um, uh, some type of uh, conclusion out of. So you know, like, I'm not I'm not the power analyst, so I don't want to go too deep into what happened in, in Texas uh, the other week. But I think that um, some of the best arguments that I saw were ones that, you know, kind of objectively looked at the data and looked at what that said. And that's what, you know, that's what we do at Inveris. When we look at uh, a play's economics and we're looking at, you know, the amount of remaining inventory in the Permian, uh, we'll take a very uh, rigorous analytics approach that is also transparent. And then we could point to like, hey, this is exactly step by step how we how we estimate how many years of inventory this company has, or no, this is exactly how, um, you know, we're getting to this company being a strong ESG performer. And then that way there, we could have that dialogue where a company, you know, a client might um, want to say like, hey, why wasn't this number included? Why wasn't that number included? But I think that at least when you're starting from a point of, of, of data, then you could have that, uh, it, you, you could, you could have, um, I think a more thorough conversation. So, it, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, Nick, let's before we get you out of here folks that are you know uh, want to find out more um, they just want to talk to someone intelligent you know just because that's nice <laughs> um, what should they do should they reach out to you should they reach the website where should they go how do you connect what, tell us how to find out more about what you guys got going on yeah like uh you could always reach out to like through our Inveris website if you're interested uh, you could reach out to me directly and i'm, I'm on linkedin nick volkmer um uh also on email to nick.volkmer at inveris.com um so a few different ways to reach, reach out to us uh but yeah we're, we're we're pretty active everywhere so 
um, feel free to uh, drop a note if you're interested. All right. Very good. Um, Nick, it was lovely to get you on um, and hopefully get you guys back on here in the near future. Best of luck to you guys and what you have going on over there in Paris. Yeah, awesome, guys. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, and thanks, it's Nick. a great podcast. So, yeah, keep it going because we're almost at 200. It's exciting. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Okay. Bye. Later. Thank you, sir. Uh, thanks again to Nick Volkmer with Inverse for coming on. That was, uh, that was hey, an interesting you, talk. Look interesting talk, Ryan. You got his name right. Look at you. Like, I did. You, I did. Nick, I am a, I was, I'm a I name expert. I was confident you could get Nick right. Volkmer. Well, we're actually now you got me messing yeah, up. I didn't think you could nail that, but you did. And so I'm proud of you. Um, I just want to, I just want to title like the VP of intelligence. Like that's what I want. Um, you know, that's like, that's a dope title. You know, of all the titles mm-hmm. I've ever had, I've never had VP of intelligence. VP of intelligence. Yeah. I, I should just be the intelligent co-host or the intelligent host or what would you call it? I got to come up with a name. Um, something catchy. Yeah, something catchy. Yeah, yeah. The dual, the the dual intelligence. I don't know. We're not intelligent enough to think of. It. That's why we're not. That's why. That's why we don't have those titles. We're not, smart <laughs> to, not smart enough to figure it out on ourselves. So, okay. Um, let's see here. Closing shop. The War Room newsletter. Go check that out. We also have a nice piece about the Texas freeze. I'll try to include that in the show notes. Uh, but we'll put a discount code for a few bones off. Help out Josh and your boy. Thank you for getting to 300 five-star reviews. That means a lot to us. Um, now we got to get to 400. That's kind of next, right? Just got to, we need a hundred. Like we need a hundred and uh, we need a hundred five-star reviews and we need all of the listeners to go sign up for the world newsletter. Like, like if we had that, it would be the greatest March in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we'll it can't be worse than last March, right? <laughs> like yeah. it can't be worse than last March. <laughs> It can't be worse than last March. Negative God 37 on the oil. Shutdowns, lockdown. Oh, stuck gracious. at home for weeks. Oh, gracious. That was brutal, man. Oh, that was. That was. It was brutal. Anyways, so thanks again, Nick, coming on the podcast. Uh, John, for setting it up. It's always good to get the good, good folks at Inveris on the show. And I don't think – I think we've had – I don't get some folks that are wanting to come on. I don't know if I've booked anybody. I think we'll have a guest on here in the next couple of weeks. Anyways, we'll be back next week as always. Until then, keep climbing.